a mix of uh, holiness groups that what we know of in at the turn of the 20th century, um, classical Pentecostalism emerged. One of the people who's really important for this emergent is a guy by the name of Charles Fox Parham. Charles Fox Parham is also, uh, he's from Iowa. He was converted by Methodists. He attended a Methodist college in uh, Kansas. And while he's there, he has what he believes is an experience of divine healing. That a sickness that he had had reoccurring throughout his entire life suddenly had left him and he, he didn't, didn't experience it anymore. All that time, he's wrestling also with a call for ministry. And he ends up beginning his ministry within the Methodist Church, but he becomes attached as an evangelist to a number of these independent holiness evangelist uh, groups. And he takes up the fire baptized holiness call that of this third experience of a third blessing of being saved, sanctified, filled with the Holy Ghost and with fire. So he's an advocate of, of that movement. He also begins advocating this this experience of divine healing as possible in what God is doing in the world uh, in his day. In 1898, he begins publishing a journal called The Apostolic Faith. And that same year, he opens up a healing home uh, in Kansas, a place where the six would be gathered in for, for prayer. Uh, and he buys an old house uh, that had been um, a kind of folly from an industrialist who couldn't finish it and, and begins this, this home. Then in 1900, he visits a commune, uh, which was created by a bunch of holiness folks. And it's there that he hears talk of what's known as the latter rain teaching. This was a teaching that, like the agricultural cycles in Israel, that there was an early rain after planting that would get the grain started, and then there was a latter rain just before the harvest that would ripen the crop for harvest. That in parallel to that, this teaching went, that God was going to do the same thing with his church. That there was going to be an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, at the end just before the final harvest. He also, while he's there, hears stories of people speaking in miraculous tongues for the sake of mission. Now, these aren't glossolalia as we think of them today. These were known tongues so that others in foreign countries could understand the gospel. So when you think about some of the influences on Pentecostal, classical Pentecostal theology, you have this, this latter rain teaching, which is the idea that Jesus is coming soon so we can expect the Holy Spirit to be outpoured. There's an emphasis on world mission. And then there was a study of the book of Acts that looked at the speaking of tongues. And this study um, was done at this Bethel healing home, which had become also a quasi-seminary, Bethel Seminary, um, which uh, Charles Fox Parham had established in Kansas. And there, a group of his students had been spending the semester studying the book of Acts, and they came to the conclusion that the sign of this baptism of the Holy Spirit was the speaking in tongues. That was the evidence of the third blessing. That becomes 
key for later classical Pentecostal teaching. Now, how does nobody had actually experienced this among the students, but then on a watch night service uh, from 1900 to 1901, while uh, Parham himself was away, a group of the students were meeting to, uh, in, a, in a prayer meeting overnight, and um, one of the students, a woman by the name of Agnes Osman, spoke in tongues after another student laid hands on her and prayed for her to receive baptism of the Holy Spirit. Supposedly she spoke Chinese. I don't know if anybody was there to confirm or deny that. Uh, Agnes never went to um, China. She ended up, though, ministering among very poor people in missions uh, in Omaha, Nebraska. This brings us to a guy by the name of William Seymour. William Seymour uh, was the son of slaves. He'd been born in Louisiana, and he had been part of the migration up north, uh, seeking a better life. He was blind, at least in one eye, and he started out in, in Indianapolis and then moved to Cincinnati. And in Cincinnati, he came into contact with a man by the name of Martin Wells Knapp, um, who was leading this group that was emphasizing um, the uh, mission to the world of holiness people in anticipation that Christ would return. Knapp was a, a Methodist uh, preacher. And under his um, tutelage, Seymour has an experience of sanctification. Seymour then wants to go to Bible school, and so he moves to attend Parham's Bible school, which Parham has opened another uh, uh, plant of his Bible school in Texas. And so uh, Seymour goes down there to attend this Bible school. Now the laws against segregation in Texas mean that he can't attend classes with other students. But in order to sort of fulfill the letter of the law, they basically put William Seymour's chair just outside the door and they leave the door open. So Seymour's able to hear the teaching on uh, this idea of the second, uh, the third blessing and the idea of speaking in tongues, and he becomes a convert. In 1906, he accepts a call as a pastor to an African-American holiness community in Los Angeles. And when he gets there, um, he arrives in Los Angeles and he begins teaching this doctrine of, of the baptism of the Holy Spirit and with fire and that tongues is going to be the evidence of this. And basically, these this African-American holiness uh, church isn't having any part of it, and they literally lock the door on him. So he, one of the members of that church, a guy by the name of Richard Asbury, invites him to preach at his house uh, at, on Bonnie Bray Street. And so he begins these services. And on April 9th, um, at this house, people speak in tongues. And this tr attracts larger and larger crowds. Eventually, the front porch of this house collapses, and they are forced to find new quarters. And so they buy a stable, which had formerly been an AME church, uh, at 312 Azusa Street. And there they begin these revival meetings, which are what we would think of as completely disorganized, but uh, it was a, you know, an attempt to, to allow the Holy Spirit to do whatever the Holy Spirit wanted. And huge interracial crowds began to come and, and join this 
this, uh, this service that began in, in 1906 and went nightly. Now, there were revival meetings going on in different parts of Los Angeles and, and especially in different holiness kind of communities uh, also at this time. But because of the interracial nature, this was attracting, uh, and the evidence of tongues, attracting a great deal of attention, including uh, the attention of uh, the newspapers. So um, at one time, uh, the, the headline above the fold of you know, the, the main Los Angeles paper, which was William Randolph Hearst's paper, was Weird Babble of Tongues. Now, because of this publicity, a number of holiness folks from around the country heard about it and made pilgrimages to this place. One of these was Ivy Campbell, who came from uh, Ohio and you know, took the teachings back to her community in Akron, um, where she's kind of the apostle of Pentecostalism to Ohio. Another woman, Carrie Judd Montgomery, uh, who had experienced healing uh, af as a young girl, um, from an African-American holiness uh, woman preacher and had after that begun her own kind of ministry of teaching, goes there, has an experience, and then travels the world and, and, and looks at other revivals that are going on in Wales and uh, in Australia and in Pyongyang, Korea, and in India, um, and, and helps to connect these different revivals that are going on globally. Uh, Charles H. Mason comes from Memphis, Tennessee, receives a Pentecostal experience, goes back and founds the Church of God in Christ, which is today the, one of the largest Pentecostal uh, churches in America, certainly the largest Afri primarily African-American Pentecostal church. One of the most interesting folks, uh, though, is this guy by the name of Gaston Barnabas Cashwell. Now, he was a member of the Methodist Episcopal Church South. He was a minister. And he had gotten involved with a uh, holiness preacher down there uh, in eastern North Carolina who was preaching against tobacco and worldlings and bishops uh, and had founded the North Carolina Holiness Association until he got kicked out of the Methodist Church and it then became the, the North Carolina Holiness Church. Cashwell joins that church and makes this pilgrimage to Azusa Street. And when he gets there, he is forced to confront his own racism. So he sees this revival that's going on, and he sees it being led, though not in any kind of uh, um, you know, uh, hierarchical way, really, but led by this, this African-American half-blind preacher. And he's forced to confront his own racism, and, and this sort of mixed you know, group of interracial folks. Uh, it was said that the color line was washed away in the blood at Azusa Street. Cashwell wants the experience, but he, he um, has a dream in a restless night, and he knows that he will not receive the gift unless he kneels before Seymour and allows Seymour to lay hands on him. And he's never had an African-American touch him before. He's wrestling with the Holy Spirit, gets up the next day, he goes to the meeting, and he kneels before Seymour, has Seymour lay hands on him, and he does receive this gift of speaking in tongues. 
He goes back to North Carolina and he leads a, a revival in Dunn, North Carolina, known as the Dunn Revival. And because of that revival, the, the North Carolina Holiness uh, Church uh, accepts Pentecostal teaching and he then goes on a, a ministry throughout the South. And he is the one, through these, this kind of itinerant preaching ministry, who converts the future leaders of the Assemblies of God and the Church of God Cleveland, Tennessee, to Pentecostal teaching. One of the interesting things is, is that when he gets back from this, he rejoins the Methodist Episcopal Church South, and he remains a, a Methodist Episcopal Church South uh, member for the rest of his life. But that is the origin of American Pentecostalism. <music>